All right, what we're we doing now? Um, book of Hebrews, we started. Before we get into that, I want you to have a little, cast your mind back, have a little think. Um, hand up here who, who drives, who drives a car. When you think about driving a car, hands up who's driven on motorways. Hands up who's driven long journeys on motorways. Hands up who's driven long journeys on motorways, just endless journeys. Have you ever been one of those times when you've been on the motorway and it's kind of, it's the monotony of just keep going, obviously at 70 miles an hour, just putting that out there, up the motorway. And have you ever got those times where you've been going for a long time and you start to kind of, your body starts to slowly shut down and you just feel that kind of and you see these signs, you put the sign up on the motorway, you get these ones that kind of come up every so often. Have you ever been in a situation when you can actually feel yourself, I think I'm going to force it, I need to stop? Then have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever been the one where you can slightly start to veer slightly out of the lane, you get the rumble strips down the side? Have you ever had that? I had that once, where I suddenly started to drive and suddenly it was... And it was suddenly I was hitting the rumble strips at the side, thinking, oh, focus, focus, crane. Um, and this... This phenomenon of falling asleep at the wheel is actually being increased on our roads. I don't know if you realize this. Apparently now, 20% of accidents on what they call monotonous roads, so basically motorways, those kind of just long, road, long roads, is this falling? Okay, I've got to keep an eye on this. All right. But anyway, 20%, if it keeps going, I'm looking at you, you just, you're in there. All right. The best thing is if you run across and dive while I'm speaking. That would be the most exciting. Thank you, Mike. 20% of accidents now on roads are attributed to this idea of people kind of falling asleep at the wheels, losing concentration. And I've, according to research, this can happen within 20 minutes of you starting to drive. So it's not like hours into a journey. If you're tired before you start, within 20 minutes this phenomenon can happen. People can have accidents. Uh, into 18 to 30-year-old men, people like me, are most likely to have this accident... We, the 18 to 30-year-old men, are most likely to have this accident late at night, tired. Older drivers, over 60-plus, are most likely to have it apparently this mid-afternoon when the body clock dips. Just saying, that's what it says in the research. And our modern lifestyle of early starts, long commutes, has contributed to this kind of phenomenon happening on our motorways and accidents happening. And I was reading a government leaflet about this. And it said this, this, this line caught me, and I wrote it down. It said, all drivers, all of them, all drivers who fall asleep at the wheel have a degree of warning. All drivers who fall asleep at the wheel have a degree of warning. So what it's saying is everybody this happens to, every person, regardless of age, regardless of gender, everyone who this happens to, they knew it was coming because there are warning signs. They knew this was going to happen to them. So actually, we're actually saying they're responsible for their actions. They didn't stop. They didn't take a break. They didn't have a drink. They didn't have a nap. They didn't do anything. There were warning signs, and they ignored us. They ignored it. And what we're going to look at today in Hebrews, in this next section, is some warning signs for us about actually our walk with God. Because just like those drivers who fall asleep at the wheel and have crashes, there's warning signs for us as believers. And are we drifting off course in our walk with God? And the writer of the Hebrews has got some pretty serious things to say about it. And so what we look at, we're at the beginning of chapter 3 now. So we've had three sermons so far looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2. 
And we saw right at the beginning of the Bible, the right beginning of the, the, sort of the letter, it talks about how amazing Jesus was. We looked at those first few verses. The, the writer of the Hebrews just said, this is who Christ is. He is amazing. He's above everything. He created everything. He dealt with our sins. He's guided all these amazing things. And then after that, he started talking about he was better than angels. He's a majestic, heavenly being, but they're only created. Christ is above them, greater than, mightier than. Last week, Mike looked at that Jesus is the author of our salvation. He's the one who we have faith in, we have trust in. And so he's laid all this stuff out, and then we dive into Hebrews chapter 3. And let me just read it to you, and then we'll go through the passage together. It starts, Hebrews chapter 3. It should appear on the screen. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and, and said, they, will always, sorry, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with him was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we, that they... Sorry, so see that we, let's try that one again. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. All right, what we're going to look at today, three parts of this passage. We're going to look at a simple comparison, a serious warning, and a strong encouragement. First part, a simple comparison. The writer begins uh, this passage, and he uses a family image to start with. He talks about holy brothers. Holy, those who are set apart, they're sanctified in Christ, so there's all believers. But there's brothers, he calls them brothers. So there's a family connection, a sibling kind of connection between all the peoples. They are all parts of God's family. If you read ahead in that little one to six, it uses reference of the house. So they're kind of they're living together. So he's talking to the church, the people there. And he's saying, we're all in this together. We're all part of one family. Listen to what I'm going to say. And he said, you who are part of this family all got a heavenly calling. There is a destination for where we're going. Heaven, we've been called to something beyond this life, something bigger. And we've just seen in chapter 2 that the founder of our salvation is, of course, Christ. So there's this heavenly calling. He is the one calling on us. And it says there, use this word in my translation, it says consider. Consider. 
which means to direct your mind towards. If you consider something, you think about it, you weigh it, you kind of process it, you chew it over. And what's it tell them to consider? Jesus. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. And it gives him two titles in this position. It talks about him as an apostle and the high priest of their confession, the one that they, they confess as their Lord, Jesus' Lord, but it says two things. The apostle. The apostle means that he was God's representative to man. He was the one sent by God. Apostles means sent one. He was sent by God the Father. God the Son came and he represented God to man. So that's that one way. But then it says also he's the high priest. What does the high priest do? Well, the high priest represents man to God. So Jesus covers it all. He covers the complete connection between God and man. He is God, and he can come and speak to man, but he's also man, and he can speak directly to God. He has that perfect radius. So he says, consider Jesus. This is the one that we're talking about. And then he compares him. He gets this comparison. He compares him with Moses. Now, he's talking to Jewish believers here, people who become Christians, but their background is Judaism. They knew their Old Testament well. They would have been versed in all the stuff we read there. And Moses is kind of one of the heroes of the Old Testament. He is one of the ones that they kind of like, everyone revered. Revered because he had done some incredible things for God. And uh, it even says that, that verse there when it talks about Moses being faithful, it's actually an allusion to Numbers 12 where God describes Moses as the one who is faithful in all my house. God actually said that about Moses. He is one of my faithful servants. So this is like a, whoa, this is a big guy. And he did incredible things. He led God people out of slavery in Egypt. If you go back and read the book of Exodus, and the following few books, you hear that, read that story of him leading the people. And interestingly, he too represents the apostle and the high priest. He was the one sent by God to Pharaoh, let my people go. He's also the one who stood and communed with God face to face. So there are similarities between him and Christ there. And he's saying he is faithful. And he was faithful leading his people, he says about Moses. And he had a really old rough time. If you've ever read kind of Exodus and Numbers, those books, Moses trying to lead the people of Israel. I mean, he had the patience of a saint because they were just a whiny bunch. He had his family challenges, leadership. They moaned about everything. To the point where they were saying, do you know what? It was better to go back into slavery in Egypt where we were beaten and our babies were killed than stay out here in the wilderness with you. If you've got to that place as a leader where people are saying that's better, you know that you're in a tough way. But Moses had to live through that. And he, but it describes him, here the writer describes him as someone who is faithful. He was a faithful man who followed the Lord. But what he's pointing out is actually he was faithful but Jesus was more faithful. Jesus was better than that. Jesus was worthy of more glory and more honor. And he uses a couple of images to help make this kind of identity real. Saying Moses was good. We're not going to denigrate Moses. You hold Moses in high esteem. And rightly so. He was faithful in God's house. He was a great leader of God's people. He received the law. He saw God face to face. But Jesus is so much better. So much bigger. And he's these two images. The first one is the idea of the builder and the residence. And it describes Moses was someone who was in the house. And he said he kind of lived in the house, if you will, amongst the people of God. But what does it describe Jesus as? He's the one who built the house. Okay, that's way better, isn't it? Okay, this house you could live in. Look at my great house that I live in. 
isn't this wonderful? He said, yeah, but I built it. I built the house. And we've already seen from Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus didn't just build the house. He built everything. He's the creator of all things everywhere. So as much as you have honor for Moses, you should have this much more honor for Christ because he is so much greater than Moses. He is so much better. He is of a different order than Moses. Last year, we ran the fun run as a church. Who here was part of the team that ran the fun run? I know some of you guys have. We've done it for a few years. And do you know what you get when you finish the fun run? As well as the adoration of all the crowds? You get a medal. Everyone who crosses the finishing line gets a medal. And I've got a medal. Um, and my boys love wearing it around the house at home. They think it's really exciting. Daddy won a medal. I, you know, I haven't got the card to tell them. Daddy didn't win. There were 7,000 of us and we all got them. But, you know, that's not the point. Uh, we did it and we passed it and they're really proud of it. But then over the summer, what have we been watching on the TV? The Olympics. There are a lot of medals there. And Team Great Britain won quite a lot of them, didn't they? There were a lot of them. And they won a lot of gold medals. And that's really impressive as well. And so there's my medal, yeah, compared to Mo Farah's medal. And he won a medal, and I won a medal, so aren't we kind of like, yeah, but we're a totally different order, aren't we? My, aren't we? Come on. Yeah. His Olympic medal is way up there, while my fun run medal is kind of down here by comparison. I'm proud, but it's not the same order. It's the same with Moses and Jesus. Yeah, he, he is worthy of some level of respect and honor because he was faithful in God's house. But Christ is of a completely different order. He's the one who made the house. He's the one over it. And the second image they use is the image of son and servant. Moses was a servant in the house. He is the one who served. And that is not um, a title of disrespect. It's a title of honor. To be a faithful servant in the house is a great, honorable position. It's a position of trust. It's a position of intimacy with the master of the house. It's something that is noble and right. But actually, what was Christ? He wasn't a servant in the house. He was the, he was the son. He's the son. He's the son in the house. It's completely different to being a servant to actually being the son. You imagine a, a kind of a noble house, and there might be a very trusted servant who has the keys to everything, but he has nothing to the master of the house compared to his son. And we've seen in Hebrews chapter 1, what did it say? It said he had been given a name above every name. And what was that name? That's the name of the Son. He is the Son in the house. And so what the author's pointing out doing, he's just saying, Moses, a great hero of faith, but he is nothing compared to Christ. He is nothing compared to Christ. And this is the theme that's running all through Hebrews. is saying, whatever you kind of want to honor and revere in terms of the faith and everything, they're nothing compared to Christ who is above all things. And even great heroes of the faith, like Moses, mighty men who did incredible things, saw incredible things, witnessed them, faithful to God. They are nothing compared to Christ himself. And you must honor Christ above everything. And there's this final condition there at the end of verse 6. It says, we, now it changes we, the holy brothers, the family, we are in his house. If, though, it says, we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. And so what it's saying is, at the end of that, it's, it's laid out in Hebrews that who Christ is is so important. And then it's thought about he's the foundation of our salvation. Now he's better than Moses. It says, actually, but if you want to continue in the house, there's something you've got to play, a part you've got to play. You've got to hold fast to what's happening. And so the author is clearly bothered about the believers there, that they would continue in their faith. 
He's saying it's no good just praying a prayer at some point in the past over there and letting the years run on and you getting on and doing what you want. He's saying there's, there's, a, there's a holding, there's a perseverance. He doesn't want people to fall away from the faith. He doesn't want people to think, yeah, it's exciting the moment. Then at some point down the line, maybe when difficulties and trials come, because we know the, right, the Hebrews, we'll find out in chapter 10, some of them were under persecution. He doesn't want them falling away from the faith. So he's lining them up and saying, just remember Christ. He's so much better than Moses who endured all sorts of hardships but remained faithful. And there's Christ who also endured all sorts of hardship and remained faithful. Then he says, but you will be part of that if you hold fast to your faith. And then he levels this warning, verses 7 to 11. This is a serious warning. And what he does, he begins, he says, right, therefore, okay, you've understood Moses' great Christ is way better. Right, what does that mean for us today? He begins with, as the Holy Spirit says. Who's the Holy Spirit? God. God is now speaking to you, so you must take this with utmost seriousness. And he quotes the back end of Psalm 95. Psalm 95. And what do you got? I've got Psalm 95 here. Psalm 95 starts really well. If you know it, you, if I read something out, you might be familiar with it, because it's sort of the thing that gets written into praise songs and people read out. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Good stuff, isn't it? And it goes on. For these yeah, that's, why aren't you quoting that bit? That's the exciting bit. That's the bit we love. That's what we've just done this morning. We've sung those kind of praisey, celebrate, God is amazing. No, the writer then jumps in at chapter, uh, verse 7 and says, do you know what, I'm going to quote this. Sorry, no, verse 8. I'm going to quote this to you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And what he's bringing to them is a serious, serious warning that we need to take together. It's no good just understanding things about Jesus. It's no good affirming, yes, Jesus is better than Moses. Yes, Jesus is better than angels. Yes, Jesus is great and all those things. It's got to have some kind of effect on our lives. And he brings this part of the, the psalm to them to so remind them to say, don't let this be you. Do not harden your heart. And that phrase, harden your heart, is basically the idea of becoming stubborn and obstinate. There are two words you don't really want to be used to describe you. Stubborn and obstinate, especially in the things of God. But that's what he's saying. That's what they were like. And the Moses, faithful leader, was leading people who were like that. And if you just, it describes what they were like, these people that Moses had to lead. It says they were, there was rebellion. There was a day of testing in the wilderness. It says there was a provocation. It wasn't a good time. And what this refers back to is incidents in Exodus and Numbers, where the people of God basically came against Moses, their leaders, and, and God behind him, and actually were basically stubborn and obstinate. And there was issues with water, and God's care for them, and God's feeding them, and they were willfully rebellious to him. And it wasn't a case of just a kind of a one-off, like, you know, they had a moment. It was a heartfelt, willful, obstinate, rebellious attitude towards God where they dug their heels in and they wouldn't repent and they just stuck to their guns and thought, they just said, we will not have you, God. We don't trust you. We're not for you. And the, the interesting thing for them is what they'd seen in their lifetime. We don't necessarily appreciate this, but if you read the book of Exodus, um, you find these most stunning things happen um, that they make films about. They're so incredible. You know when Roses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, what does Pharaoh say? No. So what happens then? There are ten plagues. They literally, these people that he's talking about in Psalm 95, 
actually saw the plagues. The locusts and the hail and the other, whatever the other eight were. You know, they saw them. Then finally Pharaoh said, right, you can go. And so they left. And then what happened? Pharaoh said, no, I was kidding. <laughs> I'll send my armies out to kill you. And what you have, we have the Red Sea. These were the guys who walked through the sea. They walked through on dry land with sea piled up, chariots behind them. And then the, cha- the chariots came afterwards, they were all crushed and killed. They saw it. They saw the, the, the glory of God land on Mount Sinai. They saw it and it was like, God appeared to them. They saw the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain and said, these are the laws of God. They were there. They watched God bring water out of rock so they could drink, provide them with manna and quail, food. They saw some of the most stunning, miraculous things God had ever done in the history of the world for his people. And it describes them here as hard, rebellious people persistent unwillingness to receive direction and God's grace and God's guidance. And what happened to them? What happened to them? All of them, Bartu, Joshua and Caleb, that's another story, died in the wilderness. None of them made it to the promised land. They wandered in the wilderness for like 40 years where they all died out and the new generation in the book of Joshua took the promised land, it says. And I've read somewhere, I don't know if it's true, but I imagine it's roughly true, that they were no more than ever more than three days from the promised land, three days walk from the promised land when their wanderings in the wilderness. They were that close. But they were there 40 years and none of them entered because of their persistent rebelliousness towards God. They never entered the rest that God had promised for them because they just wouldn't have it with God. They wouldn't follow him. That is a serious and sober warning. Let's go to the last section. Oh, it's all gone very quiet. Let's go to the last bit, see if we can build on and up to finish. All right, finally he finishes. So he said, Jesus is amazing, he's better than Moses, wonderful. By the way, don't reject that, don't ignore that. But then he finishes, how are we going to finish this, lay on the plane? He starts, okay, there are four imperatives that I want to draw out of this. Imperatives are things that we need to take immediately, we need to do action, they're kind of orders. Let's go on for this. And so in this strong encouragement, the first one, wake up. He starts by saying, take care. You could write, pay attention. Don't drift off. Concentrate. Focus. Wake up, people. He's saying, don't miss this. There is an urgent appeal. And he says, take care what? Brothers, we're in this together. We're part of this together. We're part of the the team together. We're part of this family. And he wants like, it's almost like he's shaking them. Get this. Listen to what I'm going to tell you. You need to be on guard. It is a sharp warning. Don't let this danger kind of go over you as if, oh, it's nothing. I'm indifferent to it. It doesn't matter to me. It must be to someone else. It's No, it's for us. It's all of us. Concentrate. Focus. The next thing he says is hold on. So wake up. Hold on. It describes in that section uh, the idea of an unbelieving heart. You could always say, have faith. It's basically saying, don't let go of this truth. Hold on to God with everything you've got. Have faith. And faith is merely just finding out what is true and choosing to believe the truth. We found that out when we did the Freedom in Christ course. It's part of that kind of foundation. Find out what's true in God's word and then hold on to it above everything. Believe it. And he's saying, there is a danger facing you, like the people in the wilderness... 
that they would have an evil, unbelieving heart and they would turn away from God. And it's not just, we're not talking about unbelief, we're not talking about kind of sometimes when we have doubts and we're not sure. It's a persistent refusal to believe the good things of God and active disobedience to him. And he's saying, don't do that. Hold on to what it is. These people themselves that he would have been writing to would have experienced some of the mighty works of God. Number one would have been what? Their own personal salvation. The mightiest work of God, isn't it, in our lives? When you were dead and now you're alive. You've been born again. into You've experienced what it means to come follow Jesus. And he's saying, hold on to that. Don't let that go. Don't like be like the, um, the wilderness generation. That just kind of, they missed it. Because they kind of gave up and they were following God. And he's basically making the point that it, the, the, the evidence of past salvation is present faith. How do you know you were saved there? Because you're still going now. And he's making that point, we are to persevere in the things of God. We're not to give up. We're to keep going. We're to hold on to all else. We're to hold on to God's word. Hold on what it said. That he, will, he loves us with an everlasting love. That he will care for us. That he will look after us. He will carry us through to his kingdom one day when this life is over. And in the meantime, he will always be with us. He will never forsake us. He will never leave us. Hold on to these truths. The next thing he says us to do is to obey. Because if you look at verse 17, 18, how does it end? They didn't enter his, into his rest. Why? Because they were disobedient. They didn't do what God had asked them to do. Their rampant unbelief and unfaithfulness led to blatant disobedience. And as a result, they suffered the consequences for it. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey my commandments that's the, the sign of a relationship with Christ you've understood who he is you understand much he loves you we love him in return and as a consequence of that we are obedient to his call we are obedient to his commandments and I know we make mistakes along the way but as a general trajectory of our life we choose to follow him so we're to be a, a obedient people and he's calling to obedient fresh obedience follow God and the last thing we're to do is to encourage go to verse 13 what I want to kind of leave you with. If you, you know, if you like underlining or starring bits in your Bible, put that. It says, verse 13, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Which is kind of saying the same thing. Every day is called today, isn't it? So exhort one another. That is a strong word, exhort. Say warn, beg, plead, encourage. It's not just a name, Pam. It's, a, it's an aggressive word that says warn people in a positive way. Warn that they, they know they've been warned, that you're standing right behind them. I don't know if you've um, seen the pictures of the Bayer Tapestry, you know, about the Battle of Hastings. I was raised on the south coast, so we did a lot about the Battle of Hastings. But there's, apparently there's part of the, the Bayer Tapestry where it says one of the, um, the clergy at the battle was called Bishop Odo. And it says at one point, it says, Bishop Odo encourages the men. And he's basically standing there with a, a, a spear, sticking it up their bums as they, as they fight the enemy. And you're thinking, eh, encourage? Really? But that's the, the strength of the word. I'm encouraging you to get going in the right direction, and I'm going to give you a whore to make sure you stay on track. And it's that, it's that serious. It's that serious that actually... It's worth using one of them 
to keep you focused because the consequences are so horrible if you don't. So we are to encourage one another. I'm not thinking, don't stab each other, seriously. You know it was an image, don't you, when I say encourage one another. And we're to encourage one another. And I've never met a person, believer or unbeliever, who doesn't need a bit of encouragement, who doesn't value a bit of encouragement, who, who wouldn't, couldn't do with a bit of encouragement to keep going in whatever's happening in their life. And it says very clearly, it's today. You do it today. So when? When do I encourage people? Today. What about tomorrow? We'll do it today, and tomorrow will be today. So when do you do it? Today, every day. Encourage one another. And we all need encouragement in our Christian walk. We all need encouragement to keep going. We all need encouragement to keep serving, to keep loving. Because like Moses, like Christ, we face our own trials and our own kind of persecutions, our own sort of temptations, our own kind of issues that come against us that make that kind of thing difficult. And we're to keep going and keep going. We need encouragement to keep giving of ourselves when we get knocked back. Keep giving our fights where the world says, spend it on yourself. Keep praying. Keep reading our Bibles. Keep going. It's one of the reasons we build life groups the way we do. In our life groups, every time we meet, we have a format. We do eat, we chat, we pray. That's the way it works. So every time you turn up, you know you're going to get fed, Always good to start on a high, I think. Food. Get well fed. Then we get to talk to each other. How are we doing? How's it going? How's our what with Jesus going? How's your life going? How's my life going? We get to share. And then we finish with prayer. So we get to pray for each other. We get to encourage each other. We get to worship God, which kind of lifts our spirits above the, sort of the things of the world. So as we leave, a couple of hours later, we're ready to go for the next day and the rest of the week. Following God in whatever God's called us to in our workplaces and our homes and all those things. We're ready to keep going. We all need that encouragement. And this is, interestingly, it's a corporate, not an individual thing. We can obviously think about it on a very individual level. But actually, it's, it's the people, it's the brothers, it's the house, it's all of us. We do it together, so when we meet together. In these contexts, in the smaller contexts, we're to encourage and build up one another. Keep going, don't quit. We pray, we prophesy with people. The whole idea of that is to build us up. Build up, put our eyes on Jesus, keep going. We need encouragement if you're married, you need encouragement in your marriage. If you're parents, you need encouragement in your parenting. Your jobs can be hard, we need encouragement there just to keep going in those things. We need to be those kind of people, encouraging people, moving them forward. Okay, let me finish with this. Final question Are you falling asleep at the wheel? Are you falling asleep at the wheel? From that leaflet I read, that government leaflet, it says, all drivers who fall asleep at the wheel have a degree of warning. It's not a shock. It's not a surprise. They knew it was coming, because they, but they just ignored the warning signs. They may have said, oh, it's not going to happen to me. I'll be able to cope, but the warning signs were there. Oh, it's not that will happen to someone else. I'll be fine. The warning signs were there. So let me just throw some things out to you uh, to think about what are our warning signs in terms of following Christ. Assess your own life with these things. Warning signs that you might be falling asleep at the wheel. No interest in God's word. Or greatly diminished interest in God's word. The Bible. What God has revealed to us that we need for life and godliness. His written word that has kind of come for us that we can build our lives upon, that is sure and steadfast, without error. 
a warning sign of you and your walk with Christ is a, a lack of interest in that because this is what we build it all on. This is what we preach every week. This is what we encourage you to read on a daily basis to get in you because this is the word of God and the word of God transforms lives. It transforms lives. What about in our times of corporate gathering of worship? If your affections are not stirred in worship, when we come together to gather, in a big context or maybe in our prayer meetings or our small groups, when we come to focus our eyes on Christ through corporate worship, whether it's through praying or reading a scripture or, or singing or whatever it is, if there is no level of your affection stirred, then I would consider that a warning sign. Now, not all of us are like, Jesus, <laughs> introverts, extroverts, all those kind of things. We're not like that. And I will go pound for pound with you. I'm the most introverted person in this church, according to Myers-Briggs. You can't be more introverted than me, because I'm right at the end of scale. So you can join me at the end of the scale, but you cannot go beyond me <laughs> at the end of scale. When it comes to that, I am. That's what this test said. But actually, when we focus our eyes on Christ, there should be a level of our hearts that are touched some emotional response to the goodness and grace of God. It has to happen. The great salvation that he has wrought for us, uh, uh, the depths of our depravity and our sin that we've now been saved out of, the death and the punishment that we were due that has now been placed on Christ and we get his righteousness and we get his reward. That doesn't mean you sob every prayer time or you jump up and down, but there's got to be a level of thank you, Jesus for who you are and how you've changed my life and what we do. Next one. What about an indifference to sin, particularly your own? An indifference to sin. There are certain times in certain parts of our lives where we come across things and we're, just, we're appalled by sin as God would be appalled by it against his holy standards of righteousness. But then we know when we assess our own lives, when we let things go, when we kind of... We give in to things and it becomes more habitual in our life. Actually, we can deaden our own conscience to sin. There's a warning sign there. If you're dabbling with that, you're praying that, and you're almost indifferent to some of the things in your life, your attitudes, your actions, I'd say there's a warning there. You need to deal with that. What about desire to pray? Desire to pray. No desire to pray, a warning sign. Now, I do appreciate the Bible does say things about prayer. And they're not necessarily the most encouraging things. It says strive in prayer. Be persistent in prayer. Persevere in prayer. You know, that doesn't sound like, you know, doesn't sound easy. But the rewards of prayer are incredible. They're communion with the living God, which is wonderful. And actually, none of us are experts at prayer, no matter how long we've been believers, no matter what we say and what we present. We all have much to learn in prayer. But there is the fact that God's people need to be a praying people, period. Period. We need to be people, men and women, who pray ourselves. We, we, have, we have organized times like prayer meetings. We have personal times. We just have daily times. My favorite prayer that I pray daily is usually help. You know, simple one word one. Ah, what do I do with this? You know, but it's praying and having communion and relationship with God. What about ignoring the promptings of God? When the Holy Spirit comes and says, just like you to talk to that person, do that. Go over there, give that away, respond to that, pray about that. Those little kind of nudges the Holy Spirit just drops in our hearts kind of daily. Consistent ignoring of them, a warning sign. If you know you're doing it, 
And it doesn't mean that's not the same as, oh, I blew it, but Lord, I really want to you know, repent it. It's when you do it consistently, willfully, and you're running away from it. What about choosing not to associate with God's people? The single worst thing you can do as a believer is, in this kind of context is remove yourself from the fellowship of God's people because that's what we're designed to be in. I love the quote from the, the late Christian preacher John Stott who described the lone Christian, the lone Christian or the Christian out of church is an abomination to God. <laughs> really? So yeah, because we're designed to be in community. That's how God has designed us. He saved us to be a people together. And you might say, yeah, but they're all really annoying, those Christians. And do you know what? They're saying the same thing about you. But that's why we have grace and we have a God who's over us who helps us together. We're all in this together and we need to be part of God's people. It says, I think it's actually later on in Hebrews, it even says, do not give up the habit of meeting together. He says to them, don't do that because that's just a fast track to disaster. You've seen it, um, I love, you like fires? love fire. Mild pyromaniac, but I love fires. I love open fires. And when you have the coals on the fire at the winter time, they're just wonderful to look and watch, and they're glowing. It's like, oh, it's brilliant. You sit in front of them. I could just kind of watch them and let my head go fuzzy for hours. I love it. But the easiest way to kind of take the fire down is just to remove one of the coals. Red hot coal. You leave it on the, the side, the hearth, where it's got nothing around it to keep it hot. What happens? It goes cold, and it goes cold quick because it's been removed from the fellowship of the others, the heat that's generated together when you pull it out can go very, very quickly. And so we're not to give up the, um, the job of meeting together. Okay, there's some warning signs. Let me finish with this kind of illustration. This is an old one that um, preachers from the past used to use, but they used to have this phrase that says, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The sun is the same. The sun doesn't change. The sun just gives out heat and light. That's what it does. And depending on whether it's ice or clay, the response is different. Ice melts, clay hardens. And what I'm going to put out to you today is which one are you going to be? Because the word of God has gone out to all of us the same. There's been no difference to that. The only difference is your response to it. And are you going to be like the, like the, the clay that hardens or the ice that melts? The ice is the better one. Just, just so we're clear. For this image, the ice is the better one. What are you going to do? Because the word of God has gone out to you. If you're not a believer here, and you're new and you, you don't know Jesus, then you need to repent come and come to know you need to repent of your sin you need to turn away from that and you need to come to him and we want to pray for you and introduce you to Jesus we'd love to do that to you today that's that for you that's your only job and for you you've heard the word of God today you've heard it and your choices are you going to melt or are you going to harden yourselves and they are really the only two choices that you have in this situation you've heard it what are you going to do in this what about for the rest of us most of us here we're believers we love Jesus we're following him let me suggest a quick process for us. And this is good news, by the way. For us, how are we going to deal with this? If you've, you've recognized some of those warning signs in your life. And remember when we watched the video at the beginning of the Hebrews, it made that comment, didn't it? It said there are these warnings that come through the book of Hebrews. And it says they're meant to make you feel uncomfortable. Have I succeeded? You can tell me later. Um, but not afraid. 
They're meant to make us uncomfortable, but not afraid. So it's not, not a fearful thing, but they should make us shift in our seat a little bit and go, mm, God's speaking to us. So what do we do if we find ourselves in dealing with these warning signs, falling asleep of the wheel? Number one, repent. Repent is a Bible word. It just means turn around. Go the other direction. When Jesus came, what did he say? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. He proclaimed the good news. We are to repent. We are to turn around. The great news is when we do what is available to us. Forgiveness. Cleansing. If we, it says in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, we acknowledge it, we say, yeah, that's me, that's what I'm failing as. Says God will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the stain of sin in our life will be completely taken away. We are holy and righteous before God. The things that change us, that affect our relationship with God, get in the way. But we are holy and righteous people. But we, there's things we need to deal with. We're part of God's family. We are welcomed into that fellowship. We have a Father in heaven who loves us. So if we know there are things in our life, first thing we need to do is we need to repent. We need to say, God, that's me. We need to stick our hand out and say, that's me. That's the error. That's what I'm dealing with. That's what's wrong. That's where I'm falling asleep, so to speak, at the wheel. Next thing, we need to ask. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to ask for the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 5 that we're to be filled with the Spirit and keep being filled regularly. Holy Spirit, God, come in me transform me, guide me, lead me, move me on in this thing. Ask for grace daily. Proclaim it over your life. Say, God reveals your truth to me. I love that stuff um, that we find in the Freedom in Christ course, those lists of things that you are, that you just say to remind yourself the truth of who you are in God. We ask that. We ask God to open our eyes and see that. The next thing, do. We repented of our sin. We've asked God to do it. We need to go and do something. It's got to be an action. It's got to be like, let's get out there. Let's start doing something. Do I need to start finding time in my day to pick my Bible up? Do I need to get to the prayer meetings because they're just places where my faith will be stirred? Do I need to get to life group? What do I need to do out of this situation? Are there places I need to stop going? People I need to stop seeing? Are there, are there things I need to change in my life to help me so that I will not be falling asleep at the will? Even if it's taking a break. You know, what is it to help you keep going in this thing? And the last one I put there is tell. We're part of a family. It's gone all the way through that passage. Brother's house. Take care. You know, we're all in it together. Tell someone. One of the best things you can do in this process is tell someone that you know. could be a friend, your life group leader. could be a spouse. It could be someone. Say, do you know what? At, during the business time at the end of the sermon felt convicted about this, I did this, I got there, and I'm just telling you to share my experiences just so someone else knows. The enemy loves isolation. He loves to just cut us off from everything. But if we're in community relationship, just telling someone, hey, this is what God dealt with me today is a releasing thing because the enemy loves secrecy. God loves the light. Bring it into the light. You don't have to, I mean, you don't come up here and share everyone. You know, but tell someone that you trust. Say, this is me. This is the real me. This is what's going on in my life. This is where I've you know, been. Help me and just stand with me in this. And maybe you can pray together as a result. But make sure we do it. Okay, we're going to kind of finish there. Do you want to stand up? And I want to just lead us in a little bit of a time of response to that. What we shared today. If you want to just um, close your eyes.
Okay, this first bit's easy. You know what God's been putting his hand on in your life. You know that because you're thinking about it. God's prodded it through this sermon. There's something. That's the easy bit. You know what it is. The difficult bit is what are you going to do about it? Are you going to be like the ice that melts or the clay that hardens? And that is purely in your hands. That's not down to anybody else. That's just down to you. The word of God has come out and the sun is shining, so to speak. How are you going to respond to him? And I encourage you in terms of what we've heard today in terms of the warning. Give yourself to Christ. Give yourself. Repent of whatever it is. Deal with it. Stand before him. Ask forgiveness. Seek his healing, his cleansing. And it will all be much better. (laughs) It really will. So I'm just going to lead us in a time sort of a response and then we're going to worship out of that, put our focus, our eyes on Jesus. It said at the beginning of that passage, consider Jesus. We're going to consider him again in his fullness and his glory. And who knows, God might say some more bits and pieces, we don't know. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you are the apostle and high priest of our faith. You are the one sent from God to man. To reveal God to us, Lord. And I thank you also that you are the one who represents us to God. Perfect. Lord God, I want to thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, your, your death, your resurrection, your ascension into heaven where you now rule and reign in splendor. Lord, I thank you that you are the one over all things. Lord, I want to thank you that you've made a way for us, your people, to come to know you. To have a Father in heaven who loves us. Thank you that we've been brought into this body, this family, the church got a local expression here, but we're part of a worldwide community that stretches through the ages as well, saints of old, and those yet to come after us. Lord God, I thank you for that great family we are part of. Lord, I thank you for that house in which we dwell that you are the builder of, that will last into eternity when we see the new heavens and the new earth, and we'll see with you together, be with you forever. And Lord God, I pray for us today as your people. Lord, I, give, I ask you to give us grace to be melted before you. Give us grace not to harden our hearts before you. Give us grace to see you in your glory and your splendor and all you've got for us. And for you here, if you know there's things in your life, even if you just know you're just starting to drift, you think, I can just feel the drift coming. I haven't hit the rumble strip yet, but I I feel that trajectory. Just bring that before God now. If it's specific and you know anything, just bring that before God. Just say, bring it before God. Acknowledge it, stick your hand up, metaphorically speaking, and say, yeah, that's me. Ask for forgiveness. Receive it, because if you ask for it, you will receive it. It's not something you've got to earn and fight for. God just gives it to you when we repent. Holy Spirit of God, we thank you that you have poured out your forgiveness on us as your people. You've poured out your grace on us as your people. Lord, thank you for the warnings you put in your word to keep us on the straight and narrow. Thank you for your grace that leads us day by day. And Lord God, as we come now and we consider you afresh in our singing, Lord, we pray you come reveal Jesus to us, that we would be men and women who persevere with you, who keep going with you, who keep walking with you. Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.